I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's great to see you all here for this very special event, Whale Cultures. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Of course, thanks to everyone here, as always, the London Review Bookshop. Um, wonderful people who are obviously running the best bookshop in London and uh, an amazing series of events. Particular thanks tonight to Claire, to David, to Gail, to Megan and everyone else here at the bookshop for enabling this event, of course. And uh, no least uh, the thanks equally to our wonderful uh, lineup of guests here. To my right, Jessica Sarah Rinland, artist filmmaker, who will shortly be introducing a series of short films she's made around uh, the themes and concerns of Wales as she moves towards a major feature-length work. We're selling, uh, for this one night only, um, a beautifully illustrated, annotated edition of her screenplay towards the film, which is available here just over my left shoulder. Um, uh, like I said, for this night only, um, so I would draw your attention to that. One of a number of books around the themes uh, that we're exploring tonight, of course, and all come with a free bookmark. In fact, you can see um, a special whale bookmark, again, for this one night only, thanks to Jolie Ward, the LRB designer, for putting together this very special bookmark. We're, we're looking at particularly cetacean-themed activities tonight, of course, Jessica's wearing a whale earring, um, not obviously from a whale, thankfully, um, but in the spirit of and in the shape of a whale, which is a very important thing. Um, we're very close to Melvillian streets here, and there's probably no one who knows those streets better, um, both thematically and actually, than Philip Hoare. Uh, of course, a wonderful writer, Samuel Johnson, award-winning writer for Leviathan, his first uh, immersion in the uh, stories of whales. Um, and I think for me, certainly, and for many others, I'm sure, um, the most compelling and, in a way, the most rewarding non-fiction book that I've yet read. Leviathan uh, led quite naturally into the sea inside, which we're here to mark the launch of in paperback. And um, sitting between him and a key informant to both our uh, speakers, both to Jessica and to Philip, is John Burton, a former whaler himself, um, who's made an extraordinary journey um, from that uh, initial position through Greenpeace and beyond. Uh, and he will be giving us first-hand experience of what it means to be a whaler and then to respond in a very different way to those extraordinary creatures. So a wonderful lineup of uh, participants tonight. I do hope you enjoy it. We're going to open now uh, with Philip Hoare. Do please welcome him now. Philip Hoare, thank you very much. Can there be anything more monstrous, more extraordinary, more beautiful, more abused than the whale? Um, I don't know if you can hear me at the back, can you? Can you? But I'll not use the microphone, so I prefer not to. 
Um, these are two images from the 17th century um, depicting this extraordinary animal which veers between human history and natural history in probably the most extraordinary manner in human history uh, and in the way that we regard nature and the natural world. The top whale is a cachalot or potfish and the bottom whale is a finfish. Um, it's in fact a sperm whale and a fin whale, two types of the two types of whale, the mysticete, which is the, the big baleen whale, and the odontocete, which is the toothed whale. The whale sits in human culture uh, in ways which seem to sh change shape and shift with the way it's represented in art in particular. Um, and it's really only in the early 19th century that the realistic depictions, depictions of the sperm whale uh, came about in the 1835 work by Thomas Beale, uh, The Natural History of the Sperm Whale, from which is this, this is a plate, um, Boats Attacking Whales. Herman Melville, when he wrote Moby Dick, claimed that this was the only accurate depiction of a sperm whale he'd seen. Um, and having spent three or four years himself on the high seas uh, with uh, American whaling ships, he certainly had that expertise and he had that knowledge. But what I want to talk about is the way that um, we seem to project our own cells on these animals, the way in which we, I suppose, the way in which we anthropomorphize. And during the writing of my past two books, I've dealt a lot with scientists. I've talked a lot with scientists. I've worked a lot in the field with scientists. Uh, and it's one of the cardinal sins of science, especially when dealing with animals, um, to anthropomorphize, because it, it perverts the clarity and purity of science, the way we look at the natural world, specifically in this instance. And yet, as a writer, or as a human being, indeed, I have to anthropomorphise because I don't have the words to describe these animals. They are, in many ways, beyond description. They exist in extraordinary superlative dimensions, quite plainly, because they are the largest animals on Earth. But they also exist within this, this shifting dynamic which has been shifting in the most extraordinary ways um, in the past 200 years, specifically since whaling as an industrial uh, action was being carried out to the present day. And that's partly because we've come to see these animals in a, in a very different way in a very, very short space of time. When I was a boy, my mother kissed me goodnight in the evening and her cheek brushed mine with cosmetics made from whale oil. Um, Southampton, the port city where I 
was born and brought up and where I still live, had large ships coming up from the Southern Ocean laden with rendered down whale oil, which was then made into stork margarine. So I ate whales when I was a young boy. Tennis rackets were strung with whale guts. Plimsoll shoelaces made from whale skin. The whale was part of the consuming world in which we lived. There was no notion that this animal should be regarded in any way, any different from a cow or a horse or a sheep. Um, but obviously, there was a difference. And there's a difference which Melville diagnosed 151 years ago in Moby Dick in a very worrying way because throughout the whole of that book, throughout its 135 chapters, he insists on calling the whale a fish. This is an archetypal piece of perversion on Melville's part because he knows far better than anyone else, as did all the whalers, as did John here, knew very well because they were taking these animals apart. They were deconstructing them on the decks of their boats. They knew very well these were not fish. These were physiologically the same as us, the same organs, the same structure. I attended the necropsy of a harbour porpoise at the Zoological Society of London when I was writing the sea inside. And the scariest thing about that was that this animal, which was about my size and shape, lay on this stainless steel mortuary table within hearing distance of the animals of London Zoo, being cut up by the pathologist with the expertise of a sushi chef. As it came apart, I could see my own self coming apart my own organs. It was the most visceral, terrible, beautiful reminder of how alike we are as animals. So to, to deny that in the way that Melville did was an act of perversion. It's almost as though he knew he couldn't release that information for himself apart from anything else um, before its time. And it, that book, Moby Dick itself, is such a prophetic story, uh, such a freighted work of fiction that it was actually incredibly intimidating for me to try and write about whales when I was when I started to write Leviathan. Indeed, my only experience at that point had been captive whales. In fact, only one captive whale, and that was this whale, Ramu. And Ramu was an orca, a killer whale, kept at Windsor Safari Park. Some of you might remember that place. It's now Legoland. But it had uh, an oceanarium. It had a, a dolphin area, in fact. And as a young boy, myself and my sisters pestered our parents to go to Windsor Safari Park to see the dolphins and the killer whale. What I now realise, and only actually in retrospect actually even only after writing Leviathan, is that I was really actually subject, almost victim of this new extraordinary environmental awareness which began with 
the whale, which began with that extraordinary, very extraordinary psychic shift between regarding whales as an industrial resource to seeing them as a barometer of natural threat, of environmental apocalypse almost, if you will. Um, and I, I, this is obviously why, as a young boy, I was completely, you know, sensitised to whales or, or was very keen to go to this dolphin area. Um, I had no idea of the reality of these animals. To me, they were like dinosaurs in a way. It was a sort of equivalent in that way. Um, and I remember very clearly that day, we drove up to Windsor from Southampton. We went and sat at the front of the, front of the auditorium, as it were, and there was this great big pool, which was really only like an overgrown council municipal swimming pool, really. And the dolphins went through their paces. They jumped through hoops, balanced balls on their beaks, caught fish in their mouths. And I remember already, even then, as a young boy, feeling uncomfortable with the notion of these animals being presented as entertainment in this chlorinated pool and then the whole dynamic of that experience changed because the pool was cleared of the dolphins and a big black gate opened up at the other end of the pool and in swam Ramu the apex predator of the world's oceans probably one of the most successful animals living in the seas today an animal which is highly socialised sentient, large-brained, lives in a kind of sense of collective individuality, completely connected to its fellow whales in social poles. In fact, male killer whales never leave the company of their mothers for the whole of their lives, which might be a dubious pleasure to some people. But, um, and so you have this animal which is so self-evidently special is not a cow or a horse and yet here it is swimming into this big swimming pool in Windsor and what happened next I found utterly shocking and I still do find shocking because Ramu, the killer whale jumped through a hoop, balanced a ball on its nose, caught fish in its beak and as a symbol of this extraordinary disconnection between the physicality of the animal the physical beauty of the animal the shiny, glossy, black and white extraordinary beingness of it was the fact that its dorsal fin which is the tallest dorsal fin of any cetacean it rises two metres high scything through the waters had flopped detumiscently as a kind of sign of its emasculation, of its captivity. And that was an incredibly disturbing thing for me um, as a young boy. It altered the way I thought about these animals, the way I felt about my relationship with the human beings and these animals. And it actually really changed me. Uh, I didn't realise it at the time. But from that point until the year 2000, I actually almost didn't want to see a whale in the wild. I felt this sense of disconnection, perhaps of guilt, not quite sure what. But in between that time, two maverick scientists, 
called Scott McVeigh and Roger Payne, went out into the waters of Hawaii and dropped a hydrophone down into the ocean. And they recorded the sound of a humpback whale singing. That was the key moment in this shift, in this cultural shift, which affects all of us now, in that suddenly animals which had been regarded as dumb had a voice. Not only did they have a voice, it was utterly beautiful voice. It was an abstract voice. It was akin to music, to a composition. Suddenly, the whole game changed. Everything changed about these animals, the way we looked at them. Indeed, all those ecological movements, Greenpeace, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, they were based on the whole Save the Whale campaign, which became an almost cliché a cultural cliche, you know, it's like knitting yoghurt, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it has become a sort of cliche. And of course, the irony is that the, the campaign which they won with the moratorium on the hunting of great whales in 1983, which was implemented in 1986, actually, although that was very effective, actually, whales need saving far more nowadays than actually we might think, and I'm not going to talk about that because it's a whole political issue, but I will note the fact that there are 45 orcas still in captivity. And that's not only in SeaWorld, that's in the EU, in Spain, Holland and France, all have captive orca. Um, uh, and it's, uh, to me, a disgraceful notion. But in the year 2000... I went to visit a friend of mine, a filmmaker called John Waters in Cape Cod. And I was on my way back from Provincetown, which is right at the tip of Cape Cod, which many of you, I'm sure you know, it's a great sandy spit held out into the Atlantic from the coast of New England. You've got Boston here and this curling arm. And at the very fingertips is Provincetown, which in its time, in Melville's time, was one of the great whaling ports of the uh, American whaling industry, probably the fourth most important whaling port in, uh, uh, in that industry. Now, and completely unbeknownst to me, it's a great place to go whale watching from. And I was actually on my way back to England from visiting John. I was standing on the pier, Macmillan Wharf in Provincetown, waiting for the ferry to take me back to Boston, to the airport. And I had time to kill before the ferry was, uh, was um, ready to sail. So I was wandering up and down the pier, and I saw a, a billboard advertising whale watching. And all my old reservations stirred up, because I thought, what is this? Is this another kind of aquarium show, another kind of mediated experience? Um, nonetheless, I paid my $12, got on the boat, stood rather defiantly at the prow of the ship, as if to say, OK, show me what you've got. And half an hour later, in the middle of Stellwangen Bank in the Atlantic, a 50-foot, 50 50-ton 50 humpback whale breached about 20 yards away from me. 
And it was the most astonishing physical confrontation for me in my life that I've ever had. Because there is this extraordinary animal which was demonstrating its kinship with us, its mammalian characteristics in that it breathed the air, and yet inhabits these extraordinary depths too. Just hanging there as though someone had put the pause button on the video with a spray of seawater shining around it like diamonds. It's a poetic image, and I apologise, but it was a poetic moment. And I responded in a deeply literate and poetic way. I said, fuck! <laughs> Rather embarrassing, because I was surrounded by American schoolchildren. <laughs> but I had no words for it. I still don't have words for whales. I've written two books about whales. I've been speaking about whales, seeing whales for 12 years now. I still don't have the words for whales. So I do apologise. I am a fraud. Um, but... The whales that I saw in Cape Cod made me want to shorten that distance between the physicality of these animals and myself. A spiritual distance. The humpback whale has the largest pectoral fins of any animal. They're 15 foot long. They are like wings. And indeed that's reflected in the the binomial, the the, the Linnaean name of the humpback whale, which is Megaptera novo angliae, big-winged New Englander. And they are like barnacled angels, these extraordinary animals. And they're very active at the surface. They have a kind of extraordinary relationship to the fact that we are watching them. And I wonder whether culturally, in their culture, whether they've changed in relationship to us. Because they're watched by whale watch boats from Provincetown, seven boats a day going out to see them, with naturalists giving a, a commentary over a tannoy system, naming these whales, and all the humpback whales of Cape Cod are named, they're identified by uh, the uh, unique patterns on the underside of their flukes, which are as unique to them as fingerprints are to human beings. So the naturalists call out their names. You know, this is Anka, she's come back this year with her second calf, blah, 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 blah. This is, this is actually, in fact, Anka here. Well, your dog recognises its name. What's to say a whale who has far better hearing than a human being is not recognising that name, is not coming up to the boat, performing for the boat? Why does this whale reach right next to the boat rather than 50 miles out in the Atlantic, 1,000 miles out in the Atlantic? What's changed at the same time as that psychic shift between us and our relationship to the whale? What's changed between the whale and us? I find that a very fascinating thing. My personal reaction to the whales was to keep going back to Cape Cod, going on one whale watch a day, two whale watches a day, three whale watches a day. I wouldn't get off the boat. The captain started looking very strangely at me. This weird limey taking photographs and making notes all the time. And when I showed John Waters my photographs, he said that's just whale porn. <laughs> and he accused me of being a whale stalker. And he said, I think as an act of therapy, that I ought to write about them. But I didn't have the language. I'm not a scientist. I can't write about them scientifically. I can't write about them in the dry, austere language of a scientific paper. 
I can't lay out the facts. I can't deal with history in that way. I can't deal with the connection that we have with these animals in that way. Science has to kind of completely move away from that connection. But actually what John and Jessica are going to talk to you about tonight or show you tonight is very much about remaking that connection, I think. From my own point of view, I just felt I had to physically close that gap. I had to find out more about these animals. I had to see more of them. And I've been very lucky. In the past 12 years, I've been to lots of places. This is a (coughs) photograph of a blue whale's um, fluke diving off Sri Lanka. And the blue whale is the largest animal that ever lived. We know this. We know this from our, our childhoods. But the most extraordinary thing about a blue whale, and the day I saw this blue whale, our boat was surrounded by two dozen blue whales. The most extraordinary thing about this biggest animal on Earth is that you don't see it. Even when you do see it, you don't see it. When you see it on the horizon, it's signified by an airy blow, a nothingness, which is not water, it's the condensed vapour from its lungs. It's ten metres high, it's the high as a house. And it signifies the animal below, but even when you draw close to the animal, a blue whale, there's something so improbable about, about it that you can't actually even focus on it. You have to kind of zone in on, on one little aspect. It's as though this thing travelling through the water defies you to encompass it in your knowledge in a way. So you watch this whale go through its motions and then it leaves you and it leaves you with this extraordinary sense of dissatisfaction. It's um, almost post-coital. There's a strange connection. Whales, I think, are very sexy animals. Um, There's something deeply physical about them that speaks to you, I think, at least to me. But I'm just going to conclude with uh, a little sally into my favourite whale, and I shouldn't really say that because you shouldn't really have favourites, but um, and which is the whale which is so mythologised and storied and uh, sits so deeply within our own culture that it's the whale we all drew when we were kids, and it's the sperm whale. Um, and in 2007 I went with director Adam Lowe and uh, producer Martin Rosenbaum to the Azores which for those of you who don't know whose geography is even worse than mine is an archipelago in the middle of the Atlantic equidistant between America and and, uh, the European coast sort of pretty much in the line between Lisbon and Boston Um, it's just drowned volcanoes, really, this archipelago. The Azores, again, almost don't exist. They're very recent. In fact, the whales that swim around the Azores, and there are 26 different species, um, predate the islands themselves. But the Azores is the nearest, closest place to the UK that you can go to see sperm whales. And the reason why sperm whales are special, or the reason why... They became the subject of Moby Dick and the why they are, and I hate to use the word, but iconic in their shape, um, 
is because the extraordinary transformation they undertake. And that uh, first trip to the Azores, we left the harbour, a place called Lages de Pico, which is one of the central islands, Pico, uh, really just a volcano. No mm. beaches on these volcanoes, they're just basalts, really. They're just lava which is solidified in the cold waters of the uh, Atlantic. Uh, if you go 100 yards out from the shore, it drops to a half a mile in depth. You go out half a mile to three miles, a mile, five miles. Incredibly, impossibly, unimaginably profound waters. Especially for someone like me who didn't learn to swim until I was 25 years old. Very scary notion. And as we left the harbour in this fast rib, in this fast boat, we're accompanied or coming into position uh, riding the compression bow wave of our boat was a pod of common dolphin. I took this photograph that day. I took it from the prow, looking down. The dolphin were about there. I could easily reach down and touch them. That's how clear the water was. That's how lucid this extraordinary um, ocean was that day. Cat's poor calm. It was like a mirror. And the dolphin seemed to be leading us somewhere. Uh, and that does that is an act or a, a, a statement of anthropomorphization, but dolphins do associate with sperm whales, we know that. Uh, and indeed, about half a mile out from shore, we came upon a pod of 12 to 14 sperm whales. Now, I'd seen many whales by this time. I was very used to seeing whales. I was used to seeing whales like humpbacks flapping their flippers and slapping their tails and breaching and doing all sorts of things. But these animals defied if that was possible even my ideas of what a whale could look like because they were just hanging at the surface like logs. You had no idea which end was which or even if they were animate. It was only one end rose up with a great square head the great blunt, in fact, extended nose, the characteristic defining shape of the sperm whale. When that rose up, all the other end rose up the flukes, the great square flukes of a, of a sperm whale. And as they hung there, they actually seemed to change shape and colour. Sometimes they looked lavender, sometimes slick grey or ebony black or the colour of cocoa and actually sperm whales do change shape when a sperm whale dives every organ in its body shuts down except for its heart and its brain its, its lungs collapse the ribcage is lubricated by a special kind of mucus Everything gets ready for the most extraordinary feat of prestidigitation in the animal kingdom, which is this animal transforming itself into a natural submarine to dive deeper than any other animal for a mile in depth, even more, for up to two hours, more than two hours, to do something down there about which we know nothing at all. No one has ever seen a sperm whale down there. No one has ever filmed a sperm whale down there. We don't know what they're doing. It's where science becomes useless. 
except we do know they're feeding. They're using their echolocation to locate squid, which constitute 90% of their diet. They don't use those great teeth, which are the largest canines in the animal kingdom. They don't use those to eat the squid. They suck them in. They suck the squid in. Uh, we know that because males have been found with broken jaws, which have healed at one angle to the upper jaw, and are perfectly healthy. We know they don't use their jaws to feed. So these animals which exist in a world entirely beyond ours, and yet, I spoke of the sentience of the killer whale. The sperm whale has the largest brain of any animal that ever lived, and I'm sorry about all these superlatives. I told you I have, don't have the words for them. But you might say, in proportion to the size of that animal, that, okay, yeah, whatever, that's, that's how it works. But in fact, the frontal cortex of a sperm whale is highly convoluted. There's lots of whirls there. There's lots of surface area. So that means there's a lot of stuff going on. We know that, or we think we know, that sperm whales are capable of tool use. And amazingly enough, whales and dolphins use tools. We know that like dolphins and like orca, sperm whales are capable of highly complex communication. Hal Whitehead, who's a wonderful researcher into sperm whales, based at Dalhousie University in Newfoundland, has discovered there are five different clans of sperm whales in the Pacific Ocean which speak in a different series of cliques of coders they're called, rather like Morse code. And those five different clans have discrete identities, cultural identities, matrilineal identities, which meet and socialise, but never interbreed. They are defined by their own particular culture, these different tribes of whales. But the most extraordinary thing about what that brain might be doing is the sense of an abstract sense of self, of an almost existential sense of self, to the extent that how Whitehead, who is a rigorous, dyed-in-the-wall statistician, very much accredited scientist, at the end of his book, which is called <coughs> Sperm Whale's Social Evolution in the Ocean, at the end of his book, which is full of pie charts and diagrams and every kind of statistic you'd like to see, at the end of his book, he hypothesizes that sperm whales have such a sense of their existential self that they develop to their own religion. So these were the animals which I was approaching off the Azores. The idea was to film me in the uh, water with the whales. I had no idea what I was doing. The captain of the boat said, these are perfect conditions, these animals are social, they're hanging out of the surface, they're not feeding, they're hanging out, it's what's called a socially active group, they're at the surface. Um, this is your moment, you will never get better conditions than this. I didn't have time to put my wetsuit on, I just jammed my mask on, my snorkel and my fins, jumped in the water. The idea was someone was going to film me, but there was a problem with the camera. She came back out. Adam, the director, tells me to come back. 
but I'd spent all my life getting to this one point, so I wasn't coming back. So I'm afraid I ignored him. And I started swimming towards the whales. And although the water was incredibly clear and blue and lucid in the way you saw that photograph of that dolphin just now, when you looked at it laterally through it, the visibility was entirely reduced, partly because it's full of zooplankton and phytoplankton and all sorts of bits and pieces floating about like kind of asteroids or planets in a blue, utterly blue universe. And so I was swimming towards these group of 14 animals and I couldn't see anything. And my heart started beating because I really actually realised I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea of the choreography of this, of this encounter. I had no idea how to behave. And it was only about maybe 20 yards away from the animals before I actually saw them, before they came into focus through water, through my visor, in the water. And it was wolves and wall whale. And I got very scared at that point because the largest whale, who I now realise was probably the matriarch of the group, they are entirely matriarchal animals, detached itself from the pod and started swimming at me and kept on coming. Now, unlike any other whale, absolutely any other whale, a sperm whale could and indeed has swallowed a human being. And it's not a nice way to go. Because they've got gastric juices so strong that in the old whaling days when they cut men out of sperm whale stomachs that had been landed on one of the whaling ships, they were bleached white by the process. And Jonah is an impossibility, I'm afraid to say. So all this is going through my head as this animal is coming closer and closer. At which point I'm so scared I lose control of my bodily functions. And then I realise, oh my God, if you piss in the water when sharks are around, it's meant to make them angry. And then I think, how rude to come visiting and pee on someone's doorstep. And the animal keeps on coming. And so I think, okay, it's either going to ram me with its head or open its mouth at the last moment. But it doesn't. I feel, I don't hear, I feel moving through my skull, through my sternum, through the whole of my skeletal structure, the whale sonar moving through my body like an MRI scan. I've been in in an MRI scan, it's very similar. I feel it, I don't hear it, and I feel the three-dimensional image of me, the sound picture of me, my reverberating bones and body being beamed back to that great big square head back to its brain and being computed and it's ironic I'd spent 12 years trying to describe a whale for which I had no words and here's a whale trying to describe me for which it perhaps had no words and then it turned on its side and looked at me as close as John is to me now with its eye the size of a grapefruit and I could have easily touched it but I knew that wasn't part of the contract That wasn't part of the deal. And it looked at me with the utter sentience of a fellow being. I'm sorry, I do anthropomorphise, but it was a fellow being. 
I've been in the water many, many times in Wales since now. But that one occasion, just even now, I can't actually believe I was physically there. The only thing I could think of was to say was sorry. <laughs> and then it dove from this Eve climb blue into the black. Two or three miles down below, disappeared. And I remember laughing to myself at how much it looked like a movie, like a CGI recreation of a whale, as though all those dreams I'd had of a bo- as a boy of whales had become real, and yet was completely unreal, because I couldn't touch it, because the whole encounter was silent. Even the clicks seemed to be silent. The whole thing was so fantastical that it was beyond you know, any other kind of experience. And of course it was, because it was happening in an environment which is entirely alien to us. And that night, when we went back to shore, I couldn't sleep because every time I closed my eyes, the whales swam into my head. Uh, I didn't sleep for three nights after that. And Hal told us, um, when I told him this story about later on, when I met him and told him the story, he said that a young female researcher of his had had the same experience off Sri Lanka with a sperm whale. And she claimed never to be uh, mentally right in the head ever since, which probably explains a lot. Mm-hmm. Thanks. <laughs> So Philip said several times, um, of course, that he hasn't got the words to describe the experiences that he's had. Of course, I'm sure you'll agree with me now that he could tell certain members of the corporate and financial sector how to pull off a successful fraud. Uh, He's obviously more than able to convey the extraordinary encounters um, that he's had. But it gives me great pleasure now to introduce Jessica Sarah Rinland because I think what Philip has shown us very clearly is that once people have a serious engagement with these extraordinary creatures, it stays with them. I first met Philip, um, we, had, we were in conversation at the gallery Purdy Hicks uh, on the South Bank near Tate Modern for an exhibition of drawings by the artist Jonathan Delafield Cook. He'd spent the previous year, uh, before the opening of the show, drawing a life-size uh, representation of a sperm whale. Uh, It was a one-to-one scale drawing. And the surface skin of that uh, drawing, if you like, was a cosmology. It was a a universe, if you like, represented on the skin of that whale because that's the kind of creatures they are. They represent something much, much larger. And I think Jessica has the same kind of obsession in a different medium, in this case the moving image. But do please welcome now Jessica. Thank you very much. Um, I'm showing three films. Um, The first one is um, about a whale that stranded in Pegwell Bay in 2011. It was a 45-foot sperm whale, um, and they were doing a live necropsy on the beach. um, Actually, in Nature's Giants did a separate film to it, very different to this one. um, And then the second film is um, a film that is shown online on Philips, um, Moby, Moby Dick's Big Read. It's um, archive footage of different whaling cultures. And the third film is um, an interesting story um, about a whale that was caught in Western Supermare in 1860, and uh, the skeletons are currently stored in, um, in the basement uh, at the Grant Museum of UCL. Um, and... 
John is going to do a live reading of the of a newspaper article from then that kind of depicts the journey. Um, it's about ten minutes in total. Paper reports how on Wednesday the 7th of November 1860 Mr Gordon and Mr George Elwell were going out shooting on the hill when they met a man running towards them who said there were two great fish in Sun Bay. They made haste to the scene and were joined by John Board and William Fisher, a boatman. A boat was obtained. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details and they put out to sea. Although Mr. Gordon opted out of the adventure and gave his double-barreled gun to John James. The scene which ensued was described as one of the most exciting and extraordinary events in the annals of the town. One of the whales, upon being fired at with both barrels, made off to the open water. The other put up a great fight. More than 20 rounds were fired into it before it finally died and was hauled on land. On Thursday, it was towed round to Nightstone and exhibited in a tent where everyone flocked to see it. The length was 26 feet 6 inches, its girth 12 feet 6 inches, and its weight more than 4 tons, 1,400 weights. They could not get its tail off the ground when they put it on the public waybridge on Friday evening en route to the railway station. Here it was loaded up and taken to Bristol. The newspaper columns are full of debate on the name of the species, favouring Hyperudin ostratus, the bottlenosed whale. Meanwhile, the whale was drawing crowds in Bristol. Whale shares were on offer and takings from admission tickets amounted to £30 a day. Six weeks later, December the 22nd, the newspaper reports Mr Edward Goodingham Esquire purchased the whale shares from Board, Fisher and John Hare for £120 with the intention of having it stuffed and travelling the kingdom. Poor man. Almost immediately it decomposed through bad management in curing the skin. It was almost a total loss to him with the exception of £18 for the oil and £5 offered for the skeleton. The stench must have been awful and presumably it was at this stage brought back to Weston. The rest of the story, according to museum records, is that Mabel procured the skeleton for £2 from a Mr Lewis Sawyer. 
He had it buried for two years in the grounds at Montpellier, which was used for a garden by the boys of the Albert Memorial High School. There, the insects and bacteria did a good job of cleaning up the bones, and when they were dug up, Mrs. Mabel placed them one by one in her washing copper for a final boil. (laughs) Someone had to wire the whole thing together, and it must have been a popular exhibit until the big reorganisation of 1948 when it was sent to University College London. Thank you very much indeed, Jessica and John. Um, While aspects of the middle part of that presentation um, were sonically what Jessica intended, the early part was our our failed attempt to to register the clearing of the throat of a a humpback whale uh, deep off the coast of the Azores, otherwise known as feedback. Um, (laughs) So if you ignore that bit and just uh, just, uh, live with the dreams that Philip conjured, that would be a much better uh, outcome, I think. John, thank you very much indeed for reading that. And could we stay with you now, please? Uh, if you could just tell us, you've made an extraordinary journey, as I, uh, as I hinted at in the introduction, from being a whaler to being very much not a whaler in, in the way that you pursued your earlier encounter with these extraordinary creatures. Could you tell us briefly how, how that journey developed for you and, and what it was like? Just, you know, in, uh, we have obviously we don't have, begin to have the time to do justice to your story, but if you could just give us a sense of how that, uh, that, that journey developed from, from the last days of British whaling. A brief pressy from 45? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A brief pressy from 45. <laughs> well, do, do, yeah, do you use it, the microphone? Yeah, well, in fact, I was about 16 when I first joined the whalers. It was a common thing in those <coughs> days for people in my particular part of the country to look for any particular job you could get because unemployment was very high. But a lot of guys went to sea and a lot of guys went to the army and if you're lucky, you managed to get a job on a whaling. Suffice to say that when the chaps came back from the whaling, you knew that you just had to go there because of the cash that was involved. Mm. It was about money. Mm. Big cash was to be earned as a whaler, particularly in the northeast of England. I did three seasons on the whaler on the factory ship and I did a spell on the catchers and most of my experience on the whaling ships I've jotted down and made notes and memos which came in helpfully later on with Greenpeace and what I, I left the whaling and forgot about it completely for a number of years and then in the 1980s Greenpeace seemed to hog the airwaves of television and newsreel pathé and I thought to myself, I don't know, maybe there's something in this. And it wasn't until one of my daughters, Deborah, decided to grab a hold of me and say, it's about time you, uh, you did something about this. You've got all the expertise. Why don't you turn gig, poach at the gamekeeper and see what you can do for them? I said, OK. I doubt very much if they want an ex-whaler to speak on their behalf. She said, well, you can try it. Anyway, with a little bit of persuasion, I agreed, and she contacted Richard Page... Richard was only too glad to take me on board and uh, from then on I became an unofficial volunteer for Greenpeace and spoke at IWC conferences on two occasions, went to Iceland. After I'd done the Iceland trip on the Rainbow Warrior and we did the grand tour of Iceland and did the publicity around the Icelandic ports where they were very pro-willing, 
trying to dissuade them from killing whales. Uh, we were quite successful with the local populace. Um, I came back and then shortly after that I made a film for German television uh, who wanted me to go to Lambator Island, which was in Indonesia, on a five-week expedition, which was out in the middle of the Southern Ocean, somewhere I never heard of before. Was, you know, we're talking about five or six hours by boat from a small island. Five weeks. So we lived rather rough for five weeks. The film was made. And that was basically the, the, uh, the last participation I had in the whaling, or the prevention of whaling, or the spokesman of whaling. I'd been in the last seven or eight years compiling my memoir and revising and rewriting and honing and Philip, you know what that's all about. It takes a long time. So eventually it's now ready and hopefully uh, it'll get published. Thank you very much indeed. I would like to say that um, John's film with that island community will be shown as part of an event that Jessica is curating at the Maritime Museum in Greenwich in September. We'll have a whole day there. Uh, with Philip, of course, as well, exploring um, in more detail the aspects of uh, the whale culture, the industry, of course, the history, the legacy, and the responses to, to the whole process um, in, in more detail with uh, um, other invited guests, films, uh, and performance as well. So look out for that September uh, this year at the uh, Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Before I hand over to yourselves for, I'm sure, questions, responses, thoughts, and comments, I'd just like to ask Jessica, Jessica, could you just... Give us, in your own words, your, your sense of, of, of this involvement with this, with this, uh, uh, this, this creature, this uh, cetacean community, should we say, because clearly you're as committed as, as Philip and John are in, in your own medium and your own way. Mm. Um, I usually lie and say that um, I was first inspired to kind of research about and look into whales because I saw this stranded whale in Pegwell Bay in 2011, but that's a bit of a lie. Because I got sent before that, a few months before that, I got sent um, the video of an exploding whale in Oregon. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but it's pretty amazing. It's um, They decided, a whale stranded, and they decided to um, place dynamite around it. And it, it exploded, and it crushed cars, got into people's hair. But the carcass, the main body of the carcass, was still there. Um, so I... It was kind of an amazing video, um, and I started doing research. And a few months later, a friend of mine who lives in Kent uh, called me and said, look, there's a 45-foot sperm whale here. Do you want to come drive down and have a look? And I picked up the only camera that I had back then that was a little Super 8 and um, drove down there and stayed there for hours all day um, filming and talking to um, Rob, who's at the Cetacean um, Stranding Programme, um, who was doing the necropsy there. And really, like, looking at the spectacle that it created, because all these people coming back and forth, coming after they'd come back from work, and children coming after school, as you could see kind of in the film. Um, yeah, and from there I really started... Um, talking to scientists and going to well symposiums and bothering Philip and John um, and started to write and then started to make this kind of body of work that I guess over the three years and continues and um, yeah I guess that's 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 where it's at and recently I was in talking to Philip uh, that I was in Oxford Museum um, 
they have a few whales on the ceiling, uh, attached to the ceiling, and they've brought them down to clean them. I don't know how, a hundred years they've been up there, and they've brought them down to find out more about them, to take samples and to clean them. And it kind of amazed me how they would, with little tiny toothbrushes and ethanol, and they were scrubbing them, and then the lady would call me over and say, hey, look, look, um, here's the bullet or the harpoon scratching where the whale had been killed. Um, that kind of contrast between, um, in the UK, the past and the present in uh, humans, our vision of whales, as Philip said, better than I ever could. But, um, yeah, that's, that kind of part of it is interesting. Thank you very much indeed, Jessica. Well, we obviously want to give you maximum chance now. Um, the busiest uh, working, the hardest working person in event culture, Roving Mike, is waking up, I think, somewhere at the back, about to do his very special thing. Um, I hope. Um, we've got a, we're straight in here um, on the front row. Thank you very much. Okay, just here. Oh, I see. Sorry. It's an incredible moment of suspense just before the... Is that okay? The first question. No pressure. No pressure. Um, I was just recently in New Bedford, which I think is a very, very different experience to um, Wales in the UK and being off, like, beaching, basically, in the UK. And it was a really amazing place um, for me to think about because not only is it an industrial port and so hasn't become a kind of tourist attraction for whaling where you can go and like watch the whales it's a very hard working very difficult place but next year it's also going to be a place where um, the Charles W Morgan which is a, a whaling ship uh, which has been beautifully restored in um, Mystic Seaport is going to be returning to it's going to be co- going up the coast of um, New, uh, New England um, and I wanted to ask you all a little bit because I think you all kind of approach this quite differently um, how you feel about um, what I noticed was a kind of um, historical distance from whaling and this kind of interest in um, uh, restoring a ship which is part of a whaling history which we have a kind of distance from but actually perhaps that we're safer and um, kind of happier in a sentimental distance from this period than we are from looking at um, actual trawling um, and the effect of deep sea trawling, which is something which happens in New Bedford, a place that was known for whaling, and whether there is a, that distance is on purpose or whether one can actually um, educate the other, because obviously one is still an industry which brings about people's life, you know, livelihoods, and one is a historical um, kind of creation to draw in tourists. Um, and I just thought it seemed to be quite a lot of possibility for discussion around that. Thank you very much. There certainly is. Uh, Philip, would you like to kick off? And then let's please, John. John just... Yeah, I mean, that's such a such an interesting question because, you know, people... <clears throat> I don't want to talk too much politically, but um, people um, become very energised about the notion of the Japanese whaling in declared whale sanctuaries in the Southern Ocean about the Norwegians hunting whales, about Icelanders, Greenlanders, um, still hunting whales. But you and I are doing far more damage to whales than our complicity, and I think that's the underlying subtext of slightly what you're talking about. Because when you're talking about cold water reefs 
which have just been discovered off southern England, being trawled by trawlers, um, spires of coral, 4,000 years old, felled at one swoop, you know, to gather scallops. So there's that. There's the whole sense of... of being... of, of, of projecting... The, the past on this which kind of the Charles W. Morgan really represents and the Charles W. Morgan was last whaling ship out of New its last trip actually was out of Provincetown in 1921 and it becomes a kind of symbol of of the past, the fact that we've put this behind us um, you know and we feel as though we can safely compartmentalise it in that way culturally and historically uh, and economically of course, it was the foundation of the American Republic. It was deeply important to the foundation of the British Empire. It's the reason why the colonies in New South Wales and New Zealand were sustained and, and, and originated. Um, it's the bedrock of much of what we did in the 19th century mm. is to do with this uh, industry. And I think what, going back to where I started, uh, I'm going to end now, but it's, it's that psychic disjuncture, that sense of guilt, which is still reverberating. So whale science, for instance, is only 30 years old. It's kind of only as old as the moratorium on whaling, as though we could only start to dis- dis- sort of dispassionately, or in many cases passionately, examine and analyse the reality of these animals. And yet I've got someone sitting here who went out on those whaling fleets. You know, uh, a generation before me, admittedly, but it's not that long ago. John is not, not that old. <laughs> you know, uh, he went out. That was, it was, and uh, as you described it just now, and I'd really like to talk to you a bit, you, to talk a little bit more about what converted you to this other, because... It was a gold rush. It was like people going out to work in, in the North, North Sea oil rigs nowadays. It's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. Could you, do you mind if... Well, you see, in, it would have been nice in those days if the word conservation had been thought of. But it wasn't. In other words, everyone was taught, everyone was totally ignorant of whale killing and what had ensued. And how you got whale oil really didn't matter. And when people went whaling, they went to see how much money they could earn. And I, like them, had no compunction about going whaling and getting my feet covered in blood on the deck when I was six or seven inches of coagulated blood from a, a 92-foot blue whale with a three-foot in diameter spinal bones it, and sores all day long, day in and day out, 12 on, 12 off, Hell's Kitchen, Hell's Angel. It just, it didn't matter. You'd thought money, money, money. As far as I was concerned, it didn't mean anything until I was converted, as I said, by Greenpeace and the little red inflatables putting themselves in great danger from twin-screw Japanese whaling ships. And when you've been on a large ship, you know the size of these screws. And these guys were literally on the verge of being dragged into the screws, the whirling screws. And I thought, well, if, if they're prepared to go to that length, you know, what, what am I? With all the knowledge I've got, why don't I try and do something about it? Hence my 
gradual conversion. It came over a period of time, but now I, will, I don't even want to be reminded of anything that is pertaining to the whaling. Nothing. I would, I would scrap every catcher I could see. I, anything to do with the whaling, I would just abolish it. Get rid of it out of sight. Because it's an, it, it was a horrific period in our history. Having said that, the northeast, of course, the northeast of England uh, in the 1750s was built on whaling. And a lot of people forget that mm-hmm. the Tyne, Grimsby, Weymouth, and all these places, mm-hmm. they sailed and went to Greenland, mm-hmm. which they were called the Greenlanders, mm-hmm. and they came back, and many, many lives were lost, many ships were lost. So in the northeast of England, great trades were raised, you know, by whale oil and the spin-offs from whale meat and all sorts of oils for watches, clocks, and it was a whole trade that went on in the northeast of England. But you know, this the Japanese say, well, it, you can't get rid of the culture. Well, we did. We did in the northeast completely, mm. and went into new formats of shipbuilding and engineering. Mm. So when I hear the Japanese say, it's part mm. of our culture. Pardon me, you know, if I laugh. <laughs> So that's my feeling on anything pertaining to the memory of whaling or resurrecting whaling in any shape or form. Not for me. Thank you both very much. Um, are there any other comments or thoughts? Yes, here. Do we have? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This way. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, this is very, very interesting. And I was especially intrigued that this first question was referring to um, the Morgan because I um, I did the Munson Institute for Maritime Studies at the Mystic Seaport and I live well I orig- I live in London now but I grew up in Westerly which is just over the river and my family the Swains are one of the whaling families of Nantucket um, so I have a, an interest in the history and um, when I did the Munson Institute. What I was studying was this, uh, the old, um, as you mentioned, Philip, the Scoresby, Beale, and Bennett, um, the natural history of whales, but really how that was also the human history of whaling. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in how that change happened. I was looking at whether the whalers then were really thinking of these creatures as anything but a commodity, and as you pointed out, as anything other than fish. Um, and your description was just very, very vivid. And I was curious to know whether y- you say it, it was very focused on the money, um, whether you were up, when you were up to your ankles in this mess of physically of dead whale, um, whether there was just this distance for you, whether you, despite knowing that they were obviously mammals, really just thinking of them as kind of fish and thinking of them as something quite separate, uh, or if you really were able to think about that at all? Um. Um, not really. You see, when a whale was brought up on deck, and they, they were coming up every 20 minutes. I mean, blue, finback, humpback, sigh, you name it, they were coming up. It would take roughly 20 minutes, and it would take probably about 30 minutes to clear completely a blue, 90-foot blue whale of bones... The lot, skin, intestine. I mean, the intestines alone, we're talking, would fill this this small bookshop. 
if it was spread out, it would, just, it, was enough, it would fill half the deck. So that would all be shipped over the side, bit by bit. And the rest of it was put down into quainers, which were small holes, well, metre-wide holes in the deck, into boilers and boiled. Bone boiled, blubber boiled, meat into the meat grinders, make meat meal. But to answer your question about, did I think about it? No. I, we only thought about it was another product in which we made. At the end of that day, we made our bonuses because of that day we, we'd kill perhaps record number of whales, maybe 23, 24 whales that day, maybe even 30. We were feeling great because we'd done... And there was a board on deck, and the all the whalers and the catering staff and everyone associated with it would come around and look at his board and say, that catcher, wow. And he used to take bets on cigarettes. Which could so it gives you an indication of the informality and the carefreeness of who, who cares. And yet, looking back now in my present state of mind, looking back at a blue whale, which had just come up, the biggest blue whale I'd ever seen, 96 foot. And it was a female, and she was so big, you know, plump and probably carrying calves. And she must have stood at least 25 foot, because on deck, of course, the weight brings her down quite a lot, and she'd spread out with these beautiful fluted, her belly, you know. But she'd still be 25, 20, 25 feet high. And to see that flenser start from the tail and walk and walk and walk and walk and walk, so that you were looking at him there, starting with his flensing knife from the tail and walking up with his flens and cutting just like a razor blade would cut tissue paper, as clean as that. Ten inches of blubber, parting, just like you'd part butter with a hot knife. And he'd do that once, and his pal from the other end would start at either end, and then it would just peel it just like a banana. Cold, I'm sorry, but that's, that's the only analogy one can... A derrick here and a derrick there, ship's derricks, two pulling, just like you'd peel a banana. And there underneath was the white, beautiful, flecked skin. Pure white membrane underneath. Just seeping. Anyway, I'm getting too... But that, that now horrifies me. And that's why it converted me to being absolutely anti-whaling. I've just got... Can I just mention yeah, course, that yeah. one small thing? It's different to whaling and killing a whale, but it reminded me a little bit of that disconnect between the the guy on, in the crane carrying the blubber and also, I mentioned I was at Oxford Museum, There's the they had a lot of builders there with the, to put the scaffolding up and put the whales up, and they just called them dinosaur bones. They had no idea what they were working with. It just kind of reminded me of that a little bit. So, yeah. Thank, thank you both. Yeah, we'll take one question there. there. Is there any more? And then we'll probably close formally, but obviously it doesn't mean that the conversation stops. Oh, sorry. Yes, and then we'll come to you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion about troubled, the, the, the history of our troubled relationship with whales. I was wondering, do you think there are any grounds for optimism uh, in the future of our relationship with whales, or are we, to borrow Philip's pungent phrase, fucked? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there's <clears throat> each year on the uh, eastern coast of Australia, 10% more humpback 
calves coming back. So that population is recovering. Um, even the North Atlantic right whale, which is one of the most endangered mammals in the world, reduced to probably about 350 animals. When I started watching them in, in Provincetown, because that's their main feeding ground, are now gradually increasing. Um, but the big problem is the just utter rape of the oceans. I mean, it's just unremitting and it's not going to stop. I was, I've been doing some work at the National Oceanographic Centre with a scientist there who's doing work on deep sea uh, smokers, the vents, the, um, the, um, where, you know, this is not even photosynthetic life, this is chemosynthetic life, it's life which was only just been discovered. There are species there which are, you know, new species being identified literally every day. As she is documenting and writing these descriptions... Um, a Canadian mining company are preparing to mine those vents for rare earth metals. There's no, you know, there's no... I just, I'm very despondent about it in, in many ways. One shouldn't give up. But, you know, the amount... I and mean, the reason why I say that we are complicit in, in the deaths of whales is because the amount of... Pollution. Sperm whales are the most polluted animals on the planet. Because of where they sit in the food chain, all the shit we put in the ocean, organochlorines, you know, um, historically DDTs, PCBs, all this stuff which, you know, stuff which is you know, now banned but still remains in, in the food chain, filters up to the sperm whales, you know, because of what they eat. And not only that... That you have this animal which breathes so profoundly, to dive so deeply, is breathing in chromium and mercury from the air, which is causing Down syndrome in its calves. You know, and, and actually, again, in a strange, bizarre acknowledgement of our human values, this is being studied because no one can work out why they are breathing chromium, which almost kill, gives you lo- human beings lung cancer within two weeks, you know, why they aren't dying of cancer. So the reason why this research is being financed is because what why? impact does it have on us? Mm. So bloody cynical. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yes. Hello. Um, I was really looking forward to this evening, and it's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I've been um, on a whale-watching trip, uh, or was actually sort of whale-researching trip, uh, with um, the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, which is a fabulous place. Everyone should go. Um, and um, and um, one thing that we talked about a lot um, on board um, was that um, was this sort of question mark of swimming with whales and dolphins, um, which for me is the most appealing thing in the world. Um, but scientifically, I was told, don't don't go there. Um, and I absolutely adored your book, um, Philip. So um, it, it was the only thing that I thought, oh. Um, is is that okay? And I, I just wanted to sort of ask you whether whether that's been something that that that, that you've had to consider and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. contemplate. No, it, it's as you say, there are many issues about it. In some places, it's legitimate. I've only ever done it with scientists. 
under license, are under supervision <laughs> of people who know what they're doing. And, yeah, so, you know, I can't really... T- I mean, it's very hypocritical of me to turn around and s- agree with you or agree with people who say that you may be altering these uh, animals' behaviour by interacting that way. Um, it's very interesting because, you know, the animals choose to interact with you. Um, in all these situations, you know, it's only when the animals choose... To, and they're very curious animals. They are intellectually curious, I think. Um, so all the uh, all the choreography of those encounters is is, is theirs really um, so it's very difficult because on one hand the impact of having close encounters with these animals is educative it's life transforming changed my life and it's um, it has beneficial effects in that way in other ways on a grand scale it's yeah, obviously it's impossible. You can't do it. And, you know, the problem is regulation as well. I mean, the sort of swim with dolphin things which you have, you know, off Australia or off um, various places are usually quite well regulated. But when you come to places like, for instance, Sri Lanka, where I've done work with the blue whales, um, it's completely unregulated. So they are advertising swimming with blue whales um, holidays there, which is really not on really I mean from one point of view I mean actually it's dangerous to swim with 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 blue whales I mean it's just it's not it's it's a dangerous thing and um but the trouble is it's it's you know how do you how do you deal with that thirst for that contact you know um I don't know it's it's a it's a, it's a quandary yeah Yes, there's one more question. Thank you, and then we will have to stop formally. Please do do ask it. Yeah, thank you. Hello. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask maybe a more spiritual question to you all, which is um, I'm kind of fascinated more with uh, Ahab's relationship with the whale, and maybe you all have thoughts about this. Because um, in Moby Dick, it's very much about revenge, and I think you've touched upon this slightly, Philip, um, in this discussion of our sort of cellular relationship uh, that we have with this kind of, not just because it's a mammal, because it's this incredible creature. And kind of when I read the book, when I first read Moby Dick, I really thought, questioned his relationship. Is it? I don't think it's just revenge. I think it's something more that he kind of has an affinity with the creature. Obviously, he mm. can't even socialise. He's totally insane. Mm. But there's something that possesses him. Mm. And it's like, yeah. Mm. And it's not just because this creature has consumed him. No. It's, uh, yeah, that's yeah. it. Well, I'm not really that conversant with Moby Dick because I, uh, I never found it... Um, it seemed to glue itself together properly for me. I thought there was a little bit of... I don't know. It was a little too difficult for me to get into. Just a little too complex. <laughs> well, it certainly is that. Um, 
I think there is aspects of you know Ahab's relationship with the weather. It's really interesting. If you, in the Azores, where we were filming in, in uh, back in 2000, the Azores only stopped whaling in 1986 when Portugal, which of, of which they're a dependency, um, joined the EU and they stopped whaling. The, so whaling was going on in exactly the same way as used in Moby Dick, the same, exactly the same way. There's two really interesting things here. The boats were still being to- they were being towed out rather than going out from a mothership, but they were taken out for shore to to harpoon whales from a clinker built boat, exactly double prowed, exactly the same techniques. Towed out by a motorboat. That motorboat is still used occasionally from the Azores to take tourists out. When that motorboat goes out, it's only a couple of times a month, the whales disappear because <laughs> they remember the sound. But the other aspect of that is, is the whalers who became the whale watchers in the Azores in this incredibly I mean literally one day they were hunting whales the next day they were whale watching but before when they were still whaling and this is a chap who, who does a Frenchman who was working in the Azores at the moment who, who was the first person to start whale watching there when he saw this changeover and he saw how he could turn it the whalers on their days off would go up to the cliff and watch whales for fun. It's amazing. The thing about Ahab, I think, is very interesting. And a friend of mine, actually, when we were talking about it, I was saying, because, you know, there's this slightly, um, uh, slight sort of subtext that it's not only his leg that Ahab lost to the whale. <laughs> but it should be called Moby No Dick, actually. <laughs> um, so there is this sense of sort of the emasculation of the whale. But really what I think Melville is... Re- I mean, sort of on a base, on a, on, a, on a sort of a spiritual level, is what he's really doing about saying with Ahab is, is that Ahab is pursuing this personification of evil, this animalistic personification of evil, which is completely ridiculous because no animal is evil. Evil is a uniquely human trait, as far as we know. And in fact, what, 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 what Melville is, 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 is indicating is, is, the, is the hubris and arrogance of human beings. He's predicting, uh, I think that we said this in our film, the home for Moby Dick will try to express that, uh, this notion that he was predicting the imperial century. He was predicting the, uh, the, the, the extraordinary arrogance of dominion and of cult, colonial and imperial uh, politics that followed on from whaling and that the whaling was a mechanism of you know spreading american culture around the world british culture too as well uh, imposing you know i mean most of those you know uh, 19, 18th and 19th century colonies were being serviced by whaling ships they wouldn't have existed without whaling ships you know those missionaries came on the backs of whaling ships you know all of that sort of contagion of this Rousseau-esque virgin world that we, you know, obviously is it's not uh, as clear as that, uh, as clear-cut as that, um, was, was, was... So that's kind of all caught up in the spiritual aspect, and we could be here all night talking about Ahab, couldn't we? Um, but, you know, he was, I think he was kind of an intimation of, you know, the cult of personalities we say in the film, and and the notion of this kind of dictatorial person, you know, who, who is messianic. He's a cult leader. He's like Jim Jones, you know. He's like a real sort of, you know, and he looks in, you, in the eyes. And it's really funny because I've only seen that once in a person, and it was a member of Sea Shepherd. 
really. Mm. Mm. A real sense of, you know, because Paul Watson is the anti-Ahab oh, yeah, yeah, of our age, really. <laughs> you know, a man who doesn't care what the fuck happens to his crew. Mm. In fact, he actually, I think he won't be satisfied until someone does die, because that's the ultimate yeah. martyrdom. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of narrative, and there's a you know a, a com, you know a comparison between now and then. But but yeah, Ahab's such an interesting mm. personality. But yeah, anyway, I just have to mention you yeah. showed me a picture, John, of um, that someone took of you when you were on the whaling ship when you were about sixteen uh, with. With the, with harpoons. The, with, no, no, no. With oh. like dread, as Ahab. Yeah, it was. It, it was something <laughs> the, which. Um, something on your leg. It was. When when you were at the whaling, there was that thing about Ahab all the time. You know, the film had been shown for donkey's years. I don't, mm. know, if, I don't know how many how many Ahabs has it been in films. I mean, quite, with quite a few. <laughs> However, it was always the case when you were at the whaling. Uh, someone was always ah, <laughs> And everyone tried to imitate. There was a bit, a few drinks, and you know, sort of wandering the deck. Some would creep up and say, "Oh, I'm real hearty, pretending to limp," because I thought, well, <laughs> one day I thought, well, let's take it a step further. We have these um, harpoon heads. They're solid steel, and uh, it's packed with cordite, and it's got a thread on it about that size inside, and it screws onto the the shaft of the harpoon. But it weighs about 25 pounds. That's just part of the harpoon, by the way. So all told, the harpoon is about 150 pounds, which, when it goes into a whale, it goes into full depth of about six feet. And it has a channel which runs up the middle of the shaft so that the wire can get into the channel and be held firm so when it goes. So when the harpoon buries itself into the whale's uh, back just below the flipper into the lungs it explodes, the grenade explodes the prongs come out and the whale then the catcher backs off and the whale is held tight but anyway this harpoon head is as I say it's about that length and it looks very much like half a peg leg so one day we'd been mucking around and we'd had a couple of drinks and there's no whale stood inside the poop deck of the ship and bent my leg and put the harpoon and for all the world you can't see nothing other than this harpoon and often people said did you go to whaling with one leg <laughs> you did well didn't you but that's all it was it was the harpoon head yeah. well I'm glad that John brought an aspect of levity I certainly wouldn't feel able to do that <laughs> any authority at all to uh, a, an evening of highs and lows obviously uh, horror uh, and beauty, grace and harsh reality. I think the, the saddest thing for me, of course, is that the closest I've come to whales has nothing to do with the water but with my own surname, and it's a very different kind of whales. Um, so I look forward, uh, legitimately or otherwise, to being closer to the creatures at some point in the future. Um, we've got a, a, a three-generational response here to whales, and I think that is, if, if anything positive comes out of our exploration this evening is that sense that as long as advocacy of the extraordinary qualities of these creatures continues, then at least there is the chance of a more positive uh, outcome uh, for the creatures and for us, of course, by default as well, alongside that. Um, this is a bookshop with many events. This is one uh, very special event, of course, but there are other events coming up. You'll find leaflets around the shop, I hope, detailing pilgrimage, 
journeys uh, in the um, footsteps of Patrick Lee Fermer, new poetry, and uh, occupied Sicily uh, in the Second World War. So that's a pretty good uh, range of activities. That's in just in the next month or so. Um, thanks, as always, of course, to everyone here at the London Review Bookshop. Thanks to you for coming. But before we do finish, I'd just like to give a hand on to next week's event. Um, we're very fortunate that Philip, of course, wears many hats in his creative endeavours, and not least um, his uh, relationship with the world, times, and person of Derek Jarman. Uh, so this time next week, we find ourselves here um, on the anniversary of Derek Jarman's death, uh, very sadly, of course, 20 years ago in 1994, but celebrating his extraordinary life and work with the republication of his first book, a book of poetry, A Finger Suitably in the Fish's Mouth, uh, at least related it, of course, as we know now, uh, any of us at the back, particularly you at the back, sir, um, that fishes, uh, of course, have nothing to do with whales, and whales are mammals. Um, but at least we're in the right uh, element, shall we say. Um, uh, Philip will be talking as the keynote speaker uh, on the 14th, on Friday, um, at Chelsea College of Art, where he will be uh, opening the day of uh, exploration of Derek Jarman's life and work. But um, because of his involvement with, with Derek's milieu, um, I'd just like to ask him, before we finally close, just to read a sea-related poem, if he can find it, from the collection of poetry that we will be exploring next week. It's very short. Poem two. Now I am sailing on this rocking chair, back, back, to where tomorrow washes the pavilions of today. Be good. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Please stand by. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.